Welcome, 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 psychotic bomb school. Welcome, welcome, DJ Red. You're listening to Psychotic Bomb School on KCWGTheTruth.com with your host, DJ Rome. Yes! Ha-ha! Hey, welcome to the program, everyone. You just stepped inside of Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul, my name is DJ Rome, and I want to welcome you to another fantastic edition of Psychotic Bump School this evening. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are in for a very fantabulous show. Oh, my goodness, there's so much happening tonight, but it's very focused tonight. We're focusing on Prince and Morris Day. Yes, that's right. Prince just released his Super Deluxe, posthumously, of course. The Super Deluxe of 1999, we're going to be spending a little time talking about that, but mainly we're going to be reviewing two pieces of literature, The Beautiful Ones, which is actually Prince's final and perhaps only memoir that he personally wrote with his own hands. That's right, The Beautiful Ones. We're going to be talking about that, and we're also going to be reviewing On Time, A Princely Life in Funk, written by David Ritz and, of course, Mr. Morris Day. Oh, my goodness, it's going to be a great program. And helping me have this conversation tonight will be two of our returning champs, legendary urban music journalist Mr. A. Scott Galloway, as well as Juliana Bolden from Black Tree TV. So I cannot wait to bring Scott and Juliana into this discussion. We're talking Prince and Morris Day tonight, y'all, the beautiful ones and on time. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back with A. Sky Galloway and Juliana Bowden for the Prince and Morris Tribute after this.
day The only way to see is your way The door goes slam Now you sing this jam Go Got some music get you high again Got the beat make you act like a hooligan Got the rhyme make you tell a friend Prince gonna get you high I get you high for the next run. KCWGTheTruth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. Oh, my goodness. That is just a taste of what you're in store for tonight. So we already have our first two guests on the line, our only guests for the evening. But before I introduce them, I want to remind you that we have a Facebook page out there, y'all. Facebook.com slash SoulChildrenLA. That's where you can find all of our events and posts and keep up with everything that we're doing. Facebook.com slash SoulChildrenLA. We have an archive page on Mixcloud, mixcloud.com slash SoulChildrenLA, and you can type in Psychotic Bump School Podcast on iTunes and find us on iTunes at Psychotic Bump School Podcast. Well, this is a celebratory event. We're talking about Prince, Morris Day. 
the beautiful ones, On Time and 1999. And to help me have this Minneapolis-focused conversation tonight are two of my favorite guests on Psychotic Bump School. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, the good sister, Juliana Bowden, and my good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Juliana, Scott, are you there? I am still there. What's happening? (laughs) Well, welcome on back, you two. How in the world have y'all been? Have you been around the world in a day? I've been dreaming since I wrote this. Forgive me if I go astray. Say what? Oh, my goodness, Scott. She is already into it. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. She's been doing it. So, uh, wow, thank you for joining us tonight, y'all. Uh, this is a pretty monumental occasion here. Uh, I can't think of a time, Juliana and Scott, where I have actually indulged in two pieces of disparate literature as I have with these two. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, two, well, three releases came out in very, very recent successive fashion. Uh, most recently, 1999, the uh, incredible groundbreaking breakthrough album for Prince way back in 1982, I believe, uh, titled 1999. He just released, or his estate anyway, released the super deluxe edition of 1999 with some additional tracks. Uh, We're going to be talking about the core uh, release of 1999. And uh, two books, A. Scott Galloway, The Beautiful Ones, uh, partially written by Prince himself, Oh, my goodness, i got to talk about that. And as well as On Time, A Princely Life in Funk, written by David Ritz and Morris E. Day. So we have an awful lot to get to tonight, y'all. Wow, where do we begin? Can y'all even begin to capture the significance of this this, this triad of releases? Uh, Let's go to Juliana first. You've been a fan for quite some time, and I know you're familiar with 1999. Uh, When you heard this extra edition was coming out and these two pieces of literature were coming out, uh, what has been the surrounding chatter in your neck of the woods? Miss Juliana Bowden, and then I want to hear from my good brother, Mr. A. Sky Galloway. Miss Bowden, what have you heard? Sure. You know, so for those who may not know exactly what went on with the 1999 release, on Black Friday... The Prince Estate released a remastered version of the late singer's 1982 album, 1999, and, you know, the hits beyond 1999, Little Red Corvette, Delirious, all of those sorts of things are enough to celebrate amongst themselves. But the reissue includes 23 previously unheard studio tracks recorded between 1981 and 1983, as well as an unreleased concert film shot during the 1999 tour in 1982. So the conflict for a lot of people that are interested in this record is that Prince himself was very particular about what he released. So for someone to have passed on and the estate to be releasing things that the artist may or may not have intended to be enjoyed by the public, you imagine people, they're conflicted, but still checking it out. You know what I mean? And from what I understand, there has been um, some, you know, uh, a lot of excitement and a lot of folks going to... um, a lot of people uh, really going to, you know, just discussing with one another, should I even, and should I support this effort? 
the estate is assuring mm-hmm. fans that they're giving the you know that the re- they're giving the releases the completeness and respect and the integrity that Prince would demand and that the body of work deserves. You know, and this is according right. to what um, the print, Prince archivist Michael Ho um, has said. He was saying this to USA Today. So I think that fans can rest easy uh, and indulge and see what this particular release has to offer. And in the meantime, uh, we have the books to continue celebrating and having continuous experiences for those that miss him so much. Uh, it, I, I feel a lot less conflicted and more celebratory these days because we as Prince fans and as music scholars have spoken very loudly and demanding that his, that his history and his legend be presented with accuracy, with the regalness That's that it right. deserves, and 100%. the accountability of the, the accountability that things like social media and forums like Psychotic Bump School offer will keep people's feet to the fire so that our heroes are chronicled properly. On that note, I would say turn it up and, you know, and continue to support the things that look like they were done properly. That's what I say. Absolutely. Yeah, beautifully stated. Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Um, Well, you know, I have a, uh, a different point of view on it. I just, I have felt that, because first of all, I'm not sure that the estate even is completely sorted out as far as who's controlling all of the stuff that happens. I think there's still court stuff going on. And I'm kind of getting a feeling that while everything is in chaos, that Warner Brothers is kind of just, you know, rushing, putting a lot of things out, you know, because there's really no, you know, I'm, I'm imagining maybe they think that because this is a period when Prince was recording for Warner Brothers that they have some kind of uh, right to this unreleased music since it was recorded during the same period that he was, you know, under contract to them. So they're taking the steps to go ahead and put this music out. And I understand one aspect of fans, you know, wanting to, to hear all of these different things that are coming out of Prince's vault. But I think another thing that fans always need to be considering is would Prince have wanted this music to come out in this form? And when I listened to all of these tracks, I'm just going to talk about the unreleased tracks because I'm sure that the remastering, at least I should say I hope, that the remastering of the original album was done uh, much justice. And, And that wouldn't have even been that hard because if you remember the original CDs that Warner Brothers put out, on just about all of Prince's early stuff were not all that great. You know, um, they were rushed out along with a lot of other Warner Brothers product. And, you know, if you put them in, they weren't really banging in your stereo. You know, they, you know, you know that they could have been juiced up. So hopefully they handled that part of it very well because it's a classic album and every one of those songs deserves to be heard pristinely. But I went straight to the unreleased tracks and my vibe on them were that most of them are demos. They're not even finished tracks. And I, you know, as I listened, I started to feel that we were getting to see a process that Prince works or Prince worked with. You know, he was obsessive about getting things completed 
quickly. You know, so he would get an idea, he'd go in the studio. These are things that have been said in many books and magazine articles. And he was very adept at, you know, getting a completed, basic, rough track finished. And that includes vocals, rhythm track. He could play all the instruments, you know. He could get some basic things down. But what I hear in a lot of these pieces is, you know, kind of not uh, finished lyrical concepts and, you know, very rough tracks. And I just always tell people, you know, think about yourself, whatever it is you do in life. If you're a chef, if you're a writer, if you're a, a musician, would you want anybody putting your working models of stuff out for public consumption? Just putting it out for public consumption, first thing. Second thing, having it be something that people are paying for. You know, you know people are paying for you know, listening to having the opportunity to hear this stuff that's been sitting in a vault unfinished all these years. And I, I, I think if people were honest with themselves that they would not want their work to be put out in, in such a fashion. And so as a sometimes artist myself and as a writer, a creator of content, uh, I just kind of, you know, have this feeling in me that, that Prince would not be down with, you know, particularly the re-release, I mean, the reissuing, excuse me, issuing of its unreleased pieces, you know, for people to listen to. When I wrote about this on Facebook, I said that I thought that maybe this would be better used as, like, part of an exhibit at Paisley Park where people could come in, not record, just come in, put some headphones on, and hear some or part of these songs as a peek behind the purple curtain. You're like, wow, here's some stuff that Prince was working on that never came out. Wow, that's that's really cool, you know. But for it to for it to be released, I just wasn't feeling it. And and I didn't think the quality was there and that, and that's the other main reason. It's like I listened to all those tracks and people might think I'm being very extreme, but I didn't really like any of them. And certainly none of them would be anything that you would switch out with anything that came out on the record. And the last thing that I'll use as an example is Irresistible Bitch, because there is a demo of that that's part of the unreleased tracks where you hear drum machine track and Prince kind of singing in this screaming voice and, you know, some bare bones instrumentation. That's a that's a demo. When that thing came out on the B side of Let's Pretend We're Married, I believe, he switched out the electronic drums, kicked some kick-ass live drums. He actually sang, spoke the words in a way that was really effective. He got his girl Lisa to come in and do some background vocals, and he sweetened up that track. And see, that, that right there shows you that, you know, a lot of these things could have been just pieces that he started. Maybe he's going to do something with them. Maybe he wasn't. But if he was going to do something with them, I bet you they would be night and day different from what we're hearing on these demos. And I just don't think the brother would want it. Wow, that's deep. That's deep. You two just kind of laid out the conflict that a lot of Prince fans and sort of casual fans and casual listeners are either heavily privy to or they have no idea uh, how deep, deep this is. Because when you have some unfinished work, unfinished work that you don't want released because you feel it's not ready for public consumption, I mean, it should be respected. And yet and still, people experience that conflict when they go to YouTube and they might find some music that they had never previously heard. 
Should I cop it or should I just let it go? Because you're right, Scott, a lot of people are very protective of this man and his artistry, and they feel that that internal uh, conflict that Juliana was talking about. You know what, and this brings me to, uh, Juliana, remember you brought um, two guests in when we uh, paid tribute to Nipsey Hussle? I saw an interview on him uh, months ago, months before he passed, of course, where he was talking about when he encounters new music from someone he doesn't trust, the first time he encounters that music, he said straight up, I'm stealing that, you know, but once I get to know your music, you know, I'm proud to pay. Because remember, that was one of his uh, slogans, proud to pay. Once the quality and the reputation of the work have been established, he was happy to part with his hard-earned dollars. But I think a lot of people, uh, it's hard to comprehend and fathom the, the depth of the artistry of this particular artist we're talking about named Prince, because the volume of work at which he put out, uh, of course, all of it wasn't meant for the radio. All of it wasn't even meant for an album track, because back in the day when record companies were grooming artists to uh, develop their, their craft, you didn't have to have an album full of uh, top 40, top 10 singles. You can explore the range of your musicality and musicianship and actually put together a tapestry of songs that created a story. And that art, I'm sad to say, is, is largely gone. But Prince is one of the ones that tried to preserve that. And anytime some of his music just happens to pop up online, I think a lot of people are experiencing that internal conflict. Those, anyway, that have an appreciation for the, the value and the competency and the depth of his art. So uh, we could talk all night about just that particular thing. But, ladies and gentlemen, this is KCWG, thetruth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome, and we're joined tonight by the good sister, Ms. Juliana Bowden, and my good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. We're talking 1999. We're talking Prince and Morris Day. Prince released a book posthumously once again. Uh, I think this one was with his blessing, though, Scott, as far as the book. I know we're, we've been talking about the music. Um, mm-hmm. with uh, Good Brother Pippering. i got to get the pronunciation of his name correct. But he released a memoir called The Beautiful Ones, of course, in direct homage to his incredible uh, show-stopping number during the uh, movie and soundtrack of Purple Rain. The Beautiful Ones is out on release right now. And Morris Day, ladies and gentlemen, Morris Day, his uh, villainous <laughs> adversary in both Griffith, Speedy Bridge and Purple Rain, Morris Day released a book with David Ritz called On Time, A Princely Life in Funk. And so uh, we're going to be talking about these two pieces of work. Uh, we covered 1999, so here's what I want to do, Mr. Starks, my producer standing by. Uh, let's take a short break, and uh, when we get back, we're going to get deeper into more of these releases. We have a whole lot of music to get to. We're going to hear some of the best of the best that Juliana and Scott have brought to the fold and the forefront, and uh, we're going to get deep into it. So, ladies and gentlemen, stand by. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with more of our Prince and Morris tribute with A. Scott Galloway and Juliana Bowden. So stay tuned for more. We'll be right back after this.
Yeah. Ooh, I was flat on that one. But this is KCWG. There you go. <laughs> Thetruth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And that was uh, Juliana J. Bowden. And my good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway, is also back tonight. We're talking about Prince and Morris Day tonight, y'all. Uh, we were talking about 1999 before the break. And uh, A. Scott Galloway, the book, The Beautiful Ones, hit the stands. And oh my goodness, the world of Minneapolis and its followers. The Funketeers around the world are elated. Uh, Mr. A. Scott Galloway, can you give us your brief impressions of the beautiful ones? What do you think about it? Was, it was uh, better than I expected. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasant book to kind of get the beginning vibes on, on what Prince would have actually wanted with uh, the book. You know, he was very into this writer. He uh, was sharing a lot of very deep thoughts. It's not a gossipy book, you know. It, it kind of works on on a higher plane, you know. I loved him talking about things uh, such as as you know, Black o- Oklahoma and the and Black Wall Street, and uh, and yeah. and how he was really thinking that that Black people need to, you know, get back to independence and and uh, and strength and wealth and and power. You know, th- those are things that. You know, he he kind of alluded to in some of his later music. Um, you know, most people are most familiar with his Warner Brothers years, but in in later years, when he got more spiritual and and everything, he was going in a lot of different directions with that sort of thing. So I love seeing stuff like that on the on the other side of the the fence. I loved seeing like pictures of his first girlfriend and and um yes. uh handwritten lyrics to soft and wet was you know i just uh, looking at that i mean i actually learned some of the lyrics because i i didn't know i had misunderstood them all these years and seeing them right there in his handwriting it was like whoa and it was you know for a first single that i mean he right. wrote some really really exceptional words for that and uh so i was really pleased to see and that wasn't he only 18 years old or 19 when he released that uh, he was, yeah, you know, he was, yeah, I think at the very end of his teens going into the, uh, into his twenties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I've, I've read so a few different books, so sometimes I mixed up, but another really interesting book was from Chris Moon, I believe, you know, the guy that brought him out here, you know, to California, uh, Northern California to be exact and, and how they did that first record and, and Prince lived with, with uh, the guy and his wife, and I think Andre was with mm-hmm. him as well. And it's like a little makeshift family and stuff. But you know, but specifically about the book, it's it's got some, it's got some nice things, but there's also a few other things, you know, a lot that was lacking. Obviously, because Prince didn't live to complete it, I think they did um, a really nice job. So it kind of starts off being a Prince book, and then it turns into a scrapbook, and then you've got mm-hmm. things like you know his original screenplay for. Um, Purple Rain, which had another title and a few different uh, directions he was going in with it before it got chiseled down to Purple Rain. But, you know, so all in all, a, a, a very good keepsake for fans of Prince to have. Um, yeah. You know, I, I definitely give it a, a thumbs up. You know, it's it's not what Prince would have done could he have completed it, but mm-hmm. I'm not mad at everybody involved came up with in his absence. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I have a question for Mr. Galloway. As a writer, Scott, mm-hmm. how do you feel about the job that they did between the portion that you knew that he was responsible for helping to write? And how did they keep, what kind of a segue, what kind of 
a massaging, you know, was there applied to this manuscript to keep it from, to, 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 to make it feel like a complete experience. Because we, we know that when you're, when you start to write, there is a voice there. And this voice was mm-hmm. cut off midstream. So what is your take on the, the, the mechanics of that process? Well, I, I think just given what it was, it was going to be jarring and a little disoriented because, you know, of course, it starts off with the writer speaking in his own voice, telling the story of how he got the job to write the book and what his impressions were of Prince and what it was like being with him and working with him and to have Prince calling you and, and asking you stuff and to have Prince, you know, pick you out of, you know, a handful of other people they were considering. So the book doesn't even start off in Prince's voice, you know, and uh, it's, I'll, I'll also say this, it's been very hard for me to enjoy a lot of books uh, since reading Herb Powell's book on Maurice White from a couple of years ago, um, and as a book that Herb nailed Maurice's voice, and from beginning to end of the book, he had spent many years with Maurice as an employee, and and he interviewed Maurice specifically for the book. And he had all this time to, to, to kind of put it together. He really synthesized an incredible piece of work. So that's kind of become the biography that I hold all other ones up to. And like I said, it's not even fair to do that with this book because, I mean, the, the guy got, what, 30 pages or something out of Prince? I forgot what the exact number was. But, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so it's really kind of a hodgepodge book, you know. And, and so to be fair to it, like I said, it's part scrapbook. It's part you know, things that they could toss in. There's even quotes just lifted wholesale from magazine articles that Prince, you know, did over the years. And, you know, so I really don't look at it as a full-on biography. It's kind of a, it's a patch quilt and, uh, you know, in time for Christmas, you know, for all Prince fans, you know, I I would just leave it at that. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was a good question, Juliana, because what, Oh, my fancy with the book was the depth that he went into as far as his parents. I mean, he went into a lot of detail about his mom's eyes and a, a, a casual uh, secret wink that she would give to him. He would talk about how he understood her wink more than he understood her, her words, I think. They had a mm-hmm. very close, uh, obviously close connection, but he was really close with his father. And when you think about what came across on the screen with Purple Rain, um, people will be surprised to find that a lot of the turmoil as far as the parents in his life was not necessarily from John Nelson, his father. Okay, John Nelson, of course, was uh, famous for naming his own band uh, Prince Rogers, and that's what inspired him to name his son Prince Rogers Nelson. But it wasn't he because he was a very, I was kind of surprised. He's such a religious man. I mean, he was hardcore uh, religious, always into the Bible. And that took me aback a little bit because I would have thought that would have, that influence would have been a little bit more maternally rooted, but it was mm-hmm. not. And it turns out that it was his mother that had a lot of the uh, sort of the destabilizing behavior that. Uh, contributed, I'm not saying it was all on her, but it definitely contributed more so to the the, the, the failure of their marriage. And he subsequently uh, was then parented by she and 
his uh, stepfather, which was a little bit more rocky. But uh, based on what we saw in Purple Rain, uh, and then I'm going to pivot to uh, Morris in just a second, uh, there was a line that he wrote about, Scott, you might remember this. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's a tough read in spots because you're literally looking at his handwriting on notebook paper in a book. And on line paper, if I'm not on line paper, on line paper, as like I used to be a substitute teacher, I've graded tons of papers in my lifetime, and it is not easy to read someone else's handwriting. I mean, the manuscript uh, is neat enough, I mean, it's legible enough, but that gets kind of uh, taxing if you're looking to you, you, if you're thinking this is going to be an entire book of this, it's going to be tough, but there's a pleasant surprise with that and i'm not gonna uh spoil the surprise i mean it it gets easier i'll just say it like that but the point i was about to make with his father he literally did really ask him uh almost word for word as we saw in the movie purple rain you got a girlfriend prince said uh no he said well when you do make sure you never get married okay that is exactly what clarence williams iii said to him in purple rain and that was actually a discussion that he had with his real father. So that part yeah. was definitely uh, almost word for word what actually happened. But everything else, I was surprised. Um, that there, there, it was full of surprises. And the, the relationship and the dynamics between Mom and uh, Mr. Nelson, John Nelson, uh, was a bit of a surprise to me. But this is KCWG, the truth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We have the incomparable Juliana J. Bowden from Black Tree TV. And we have the amazing, inimitable good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway, urban music journalist of world renown. Well, we are talking about <laughs> Prince and Morris. <laughs> We're talking about Prince and Morris tonight, y'all. <laughs> Before you before you pivot to Morris, I just wanted to say one yeah. last thing on the, on the Go Prince ahead. book. I mean, but, but you know, that's one of the things that makes it. You know, I mean, I've been not deeply in my feelings because my time for being a, a really big Prince fan was was much earlier in my life. But reading, you know, just the part of the book that Prince did really touched my heart, man. And because he he did talk about what parts of himself that he saw that he got from his mother and from his father. And, uh, and and that was great. And there was also some really nice talk about him uh, on the importance of, of why he created his stage persona and why he was so bent on, on being mysterious. And, I mean, see, these are the... I mean, he was really in a place by the time he was starting to write his book where he was reflective and, and introspective and and he was really looking at himself, you know, in the mirror, you know, that man in the mirror thing... And if he had been allowed to go ahead, I mean, you know, allowed as far as, you know, the creative giving him more time on earth to, to finish what he'd started with that book, or if he'd started it earlier, I think we would have really gotten uh, some real pearls. Because, But because the guy was so mysterious and so, you know, wishy-washy with the media as far as what he was telling you, and even in the movie, again, you know, what's real, what's not real, he played with reality and fantasy a lot. But I think he wasn't playing by the time he got to the point when he's writing this book. And that's what makes it all the more sad when you read it, at least the portions that he wrote, because you really feel like he was about to give up the funk like we've, like those of us who really want to know who he is have been waiting for for decades. 
So I just wanted to tag that on there, man, because, um, you know, like I said, there's a lot of fun stuff. There's pictures and there's, you know, little things to ooh and ah. Oh, many pictures. Man, that book (laughs) could have been, it could have been everything, man, and it's just, uh, it's a drag that that it didn't get finished the way he had intended. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, he'll be sorely missed, and um, I'm glad we're able to keep him alive through uh, tribute such as this. So, uh, Juliana and Scott, I want you to stand by. Um, uh, Mr. Starks, my producer is standing by too, but, uh, I'm going to, uh, play something. I'm going to throw a curve. Um, the reason why I played Party Up before the break, by the way, that was a uh, Party Up from, uh, which album, uh, Juliana Bowden? Dirty Mind, Dirty Mind, Dirty Mind. <laughs> dirty Mind. Oh my goodness. Uh, one of those, uh, provocateur releases of Prince. Uh, in either 1980 or 1981, early 80s. Uh, that's when he was coming out with the bikini and the, the trench coat. And um, there's a lot of detail about that in uh, the Morris Day book called On Time, uh, Princely Life of Funk, written by David Ritz and, of course, Mr. Morris Day. Uh, before I start talking about Morris, uh, Scott and Juliana, I want you all to listen to something. And uh, I have often tripped off of this aspect, this dynamic between Prince and Morris that all y'all can relate to because they had a specific kind of chemistry. And so I'm going to play. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to play some for you, Julianne. I want you to stand by because this is a trip. This is uh, from his uh, engineer, Susan Rogers. And uh, she's talking about the voice. And when I say the voice, you're going to know what I'm talking about. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, stand by. Uh, the sound might be a little bit uh, choppy on this, but uh, hang in there, and uh, it'll make sense in a moment. So we're listening to A. Scott Galloway, Juliana Bowden. We're paying tribute to Prince and Morris Day tonight with the beautiful ones, and now we're about to talk about On Time, A Princely Life of Plunk featuring Morris Day. So ladies and gentlemen, stand by. Check this out. Well, you, 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 you old Michelin man fat. <laughs> Black <laughs> Wait now yes. Yeah, Prince had that voice He had that alter ego That was um, The character that you see of Morris um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say this because I think there's plenty of evidence that it's true. The character that you see of Morris was an alter ego of Prince. How that alter ego of Prince developed, however, I I feel pretty confident in saying that that character came from Morris originally. Mm. If you recall, Prince and Morris knew each other in high school. Mm. And um, I I think this character kind of developed as, um, it was one aspect of Morris's personality. I think it, it certainly had to have been an aspect of Prince's personality as well. And I think it was just kind of a guy that was common among the two of them. So when Prince would do that voice, and he'd do it in the studio all the time, um, when he was being funny or when he was in a good mood, that side of him, the Morris side of him, would come out. So I think it might be safe to say that the character was part Morris and it was part Prince. When Prince 
did the guide vocals on those time tracks. The mannerisms were the mannerisms that, that Morris used, but Morris added his own spin to that. Wow. I uh, love right there because how many times have Prince fans just imitated that voice? Like, yes. That's right. You know? <laughs> so Susan Rogers, ladies and gentlemen, was Prince's original engineer uh, in his very highly productive uh, creative period from, I think, uh, early 80s, 83, to about 1987. So she was there for Purple Rain. She was there for 1999. She was there for uh, everything in between, from the time to Vanity Six. Uh, she was there for it all. And so she was right there witnessing the, the, the shenanigans between Prince and Morris Day uh, right there in the studio. And uh, Morris talks a lot about that in his book, On Time, A Princely Life of Funk. And uh, Scott, Juliana, um, I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. And uh, we're going to talk about some of your favorite tracks uh, in just a second. But what I briefly want to say, and y'all can ask me whatever you want if you like, what I'll briefly say about the Morris Day book and its distinction from the Prince book is that Prince is in both of them. Okay? Prince's voice is highly, highly featured and captured in the Morris Day book. And the way Morris wrote it was brilliant. Um, he wrote it in a way in which it's kind of like a poem, or it's, excuse me, not a poem, but a play. It's like he has his lines, Prince has his lines. And then there's a, a third character that emerges midway through the uh, story, and I'm not going to reveal who that is, but it is obviously a significant part of the story that Morris Day is trying to convey. So Morris was trying to, his entire career, trying to distinguish himself as a stellar musician. And Scott would surprise me. You'll appreciate this. And Juliana, you will as well, both of you being musicians and artists who have performed in front of people. Yes. Uh, he, he, he talks deeply about the funk and how important the one was. Because, Juliana, you were here before. Both well, Scott was here that night, too, talking about the one and how important drums are. And Morris Day is a left-handed drummer, just like his drummer in the time, uh, Gary Jellybean Johnson, who uh, famously uh, laid down that incomparable drum pattern, uh, 777-9311, which, by the way, some rumors hold that that is a combination of a drum machine and Jellybean and maybe Prince as well, uh, possibly played by Dave Garibaldi of Tower of Power. Now, there is actual... No, I'll clear that up real, for you. No, let I me clear that, that up. Yeah, clear that up, because I had JMD from the uh, Freestyle Fellowship here, and he said, that don't sound nothing like Dave Garibaldi to his ear, being an experienced drummer. But, uh, Scott, what have you heard about that? Actually, no, what it was, was there was a... An, uh, uh, there were drum machine patterns that were that were kind of created and inspired by different famous drummers. And David Garibaldi is, you know, everybody knows him as, you know, the the sound the founding drummer for Tower of Power. And so I think what they did is they took uh, a drum a synthesized drum pattern uh, of of David's, sped it up, you know, and and then they played over the top of it. So that's why you have elements of real drums as well as synthesized drums. But Mr. Garibaldi himself is not the drummer. It is like a sample 
and then tweaked version of one of his famous drum patterns. So it's, it's still kind of convoluted. And, you know, the one time I happened to be sitting on an airplane with Morris, I'm not sitting, but we, were, we I went to Minneapolis to interview all of the time for Pandemonium. And when I was going up an escalator, Morris was right next to me, and we had a short conversation, and that was one of the first things I could think of to bring up to him. Sure. And he told me he was the one that programmed that drum machine part and uh, and then, you know, had played over the top of it. Now, you know, these guys are kind of known for stretching the truth but over the years i've heard i've heard several you know i've heard different accounts but that basically that, that what i said at first is is really what it was you know they used a david garibaldi drum sample sped it up you know and then played on top of it and that's how you know they got that thing and i'll say one more thing mm-hmm. um the only person i've ever seen just murder that part because you know Jelly Bean can play it. Now he's had to play it for years and years. That's what I'm saying. He can so, really play it. So when, but when Morris went on his solo tour for the Color of Success, there was this Asian dude, and I I cannot remember his name. I wish I'd known we'd be talking about this. I would have got it. That cat not only played the part, he played it like twice as fast as the record and was still in the pocket, it was still funky, and everybody just lost their mind. I mean, this, this dude was bad. I don't know what happened to that guy, man, but it was, wow. as a drummer myself, my jaw was on the floor because this dude Jelly, was, was Jelly funny. Bean locked him in the closet. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Jelly Bean yeah. put him in the attic. He's so tall, he probably just put the cat in the attic and locked the, the door. It's like, you know, so that's where the statement came from. In. Yeah. Jelly bean, don't be so mean. I'm glad you were able to uh, highlight that because that is a very famous drum pattern. That was a big hit record for them. Uh, Morris talks extensively about it. He also speaks extensively about his uh, drug habit and how that Mm. impacted his career. And the fact that his three or four solo albums, including one you mentioned, Scott's Color of Success, um, Mm -hmm. by many people's standards and mainly by his own, uh, was an underachievement. I mean, he reached the heights of his uh, career, of course, when he was... Uh, asked to star as Prince's nemesis in Purple Rain, and uh, that put him over the top. Uh, he talks about how that process all came together, how everything was a mystery, and Prince didn't reveal much, and he didn't actually know what the film looked like until uh, its world premiere, along with the audience. And so there was a lot of uh, what he calls mystery with Prince that mm-hmm. he had to deal with, mm-hmm. and you had to be prepared to suffer through that if you are going to be associated with him. But he uh, shares extensively on that. So uh, I could speak 
at length about uh, On Time, A Princely Life of Funk by uh, Morris Day and David Ritz. He, ta- he talks about that, though, on, on his record, and that's what's interesting, because I think mm-hmm. the most revealing song of Morris's solo career was a song called The Character. And, yeah. and, and I think that he got caught up in that character, and he couldn't just Absolutely. be Morris Day, a badass singer, Morris Day, badass drummer, Morris Day. Right. So, you know, he, there was always this part of him that had to keep up the character that um, he became known for in the time, and particularly in Purple Rain. And mm-hmm. that's enough to make a brother do drugs. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, he, you know it's, it's yeah. another weird way of not being able to be yourself. It's different, but like, you know, the same as, as folks that were gay in the industry and had to always do records as if they were singing to women and they love women and they're going to be mm-hmm. love men. And they're not, right. you know? That's right. And that, that'll that'll make you crazy, man. Yes, it will. Yes, hey, it will. We, all right. we definitely want to let all of the fans that are near Los Angeles or can get to Los Angeles on Monday, December 9th, that Morris is going to have a conversation with David, David Ritz at the Grammy Museum and tickets are still available Ooh. on Eventbrite. And That's right. Again, that yes. is... Monday, December 9th, coming up. So if you are in the moment, mm. get a hold of this before that date. Get on to Eventbrite or the Grammy Museum website and try to check that out. I'm sure it's going to be a packed house. And in this day and age of everybody recording everything, hopefully those of us who can't be there in person can check it out once there's yes. a video release or something like that because this is going to be a momentous occasion to continue the conversation we're having and listen, mm-hmm. uh, listen to it from the vantage point of Morris and David themselves. Amazing. Yeah, and just so you know, everything that goes down at the Grammy Museum, everything that they do uh, that is in-house produced is videotaped and goes into the Grammy Museum archive. So if you've ever seen something that you wish you could have made uh, but couldn't get down to the Grammy Museum, you can still just go down there on any day that they're open and uh, and asked to go in the archive, and you can sit there. I've done it, and look at you know oh, all no. kind of different interviews that they've had over the past. I guess they're in the tenth year now, with everybody mm-hmm. from Stuart Copeland to you know Neil Young, whoever you know anybody that's been up in there. Um, so that's a good thing. So yeah, if you if you happen to miss the uh, the event on Monday, it's not going to be online like YouTube or anything like that. But if you go to the Grammy Museum pay and get a ticket, you can go up to the archive and watch to your heart's delight. And there's so much to see, Scott. Juliana, thank you for bringing that up, because if you have not gone to the Grammy Museum, even absent Morris Day being there in person with David Ritz, it's must-see television without the television. you got to go. I mean, a music fan would be remiss, especially if you live in L.A. If I were down there, I'd be there uh, to check out David and uh, Morris. But the Grammy Museum is a, is a landmark of music history, and you just have to go. And since we're talking about Minneapolis tonight, I'm just going to throw in this quick plug, because the very first time I ever had A. Scott Galloway on a show that I hosted was just after I had gotten back from Minneapolis and the Paisley Park Museum in Chanhansen, Minnesota, a.k.a. Mm. Minneapolis. you got to go to Paisley Park. you got to go to Paisley Park. You have to. And since you're in California and you happen to live in L.A., I definitely encourage you to take Juliana and Scott to advice. Check out this Grammy Museum uh, in-person appearance by one and all Mr. Morris Day and David Ritz talking about On Time, A Princely Life of Funk. Well, tell you what, I brought yes, y'all two here for a reason. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, say that again. So easy to, 
it's so easy. I want to emphasize for the people that are not from Los Angeles who might be stopping through just as tourists, it's very easy to get to. It's in the L, the, the LA Live Complex, right? LA Live, the yes. Um, the, the, the Staples Center and the big theater where so many of the award shows and different things like that go down in that burgeoning part of downtown Los Angeles. So make it part of your journey if you come out to visit us in Southern California. And I would say even it's, it's, it's a reason just to go for a music fan uh, just by itself, just like you're going to visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Ohio or, again, going to Minneapolis for uh, Paisley Park, all of these different music uh, meccas are, you know, part of the history that we're trying to preserve and celebrate, just like we're doing right now on Psychotic Bump School, talking Prince and Morris, right? That's right. You nailed it. So, so tell you what, yes, we're going to continue this discussion, as Juliana alluded to. So uh, I brought y'all to here for a reason. We're, we're, we're It's about to get interesting now. And I'm going to indulge my producer uh, to stand by. Uh, we're about to get into this. Uh, I want to hear uh, what y'all brought tonight. And uh, we'll get to uh, one or two, hopefully, from each of your lists. It's, these are some um, – this is a great playlist. This is Spotify before there was Spotify. This is a playlist to end all playlists that y'all hey, got tonight. And I want to hear – Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> you said Stompify? What did you say? Scottify, as in a Scottify. I see what you did there. <laughs> wow. Juliana, you are it's something Jay else. Scottify. What? <laughs> it's wrong, Jay Scottify. <laughs> oh, my God. Mr. Starks, we better take a break quick. We're falling apart here. But uh, this is KCWG, the truth.com's program. is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. That was A. Scott Galloway. Over there was Juliana J. Bowden. We're here celebrating Prince and Morris Day. And uh, we're going to come right back. And uh, after this track, we're going to hear the list of Juliana and A. Scott Galloway. But I'm going to pivot to this one before we take a break. The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. I'm going to cheat and just throw this out there right now. One of my favorite all time from one of my favorite Prince albums, The Sign of the Times. But this is a live rendition. Very special. Very powerful song. Uh, if you get a chance to read about this track, uh, if you can find Susan Rogers anywhere online where she talks about the making of this track, it is amazing because basically the whole track and the way it sounds was just the, basically a big old mistake that just was left in there because it just worked for the song. But uh, you're about to hear a live version of this. So, Mr. Starks, if you're ready, let's hit him with the ballad of Dorothy Parker. We're here with Scott and Juliana. We're talking about Prince and Morris. We'll be right back to Psychotic Bump School after this. Room, finding with lovers' pants. 
How sweet the sound. How sweet the sound. There will never, ever be another artist that can swing like that. But this is KCWG, the truth.com. This program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We're celebrating Prince and Morris Day this evening with A. Sky Galloway and Juliana Bowden from Black Tree TV. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, both Juliana and Scott have brought some amazing tracks with us tonight. Uh, we're about to have some fun, y'all. We're about to hear their picks their tracks, their selections from their favorite releases. Uh, I want to hear what you brought tonight, Miss Bowden, what you brought and why, and what can you tell us about it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Juliana Bowden, what you got? Well, look, when anybody asks me to bring a couple of Prince songs, that's always a very, very difficult list to whittle down. Come on now. So, 
Yeah, right. Right. And you know, just and, and just like a person that always does what I'm told, you asked me for three and I brought you six. I see no problem with that. <laughs> so why you want to right? Why and, and 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 before I get into the two that we're gonna play right now, I'm gonna just tell everybody here's here's the list. Why you want to treat me so bad? America, you need another lover. Uh, for, forever, everlasting now. We can oh. F you and fill in the blanks. And, um, NK, NK, F U N K. I like the nasty one, but that's just me. So, um, <laughs> back to one, why you want to, why you want to treat me so bad? I have to, I have to, have to, have to, if I have to pick one, that's going to be the one. January 23rd, 1980. That's when this man made this song. It's very important that we understand 1980. That's when new wave and disco and funk and pop R&B made this incredible gumbo of things happen on dance floors everywhere. Soul Train was still part of the game for mm. waking up on a Saturday morning and like Absolutely. you know, Mama wants you to do the housework, but you got other, but you got other priorities named Soul Train and American Bandstand. This man was new and fresh, and he was black, and he was rocking, and he was funkin', and he was playing, and he was grooving. And for all of us who now subscribe to the lifestyle called Afropunk. Let me tell you how important why you want to treat me so bad is to even validating the financial wherewithal of black rock artists that that had to tell people that they were playing black music. This man mm, embodied everything that we, this man embodied everything that we needed to know that was a direct lineage to the blues that came from Jimi Hendrix and Muddy Waters when he plugged that guitar in. Why you want to treat me so bad is everything that I just said, plus new wave punk attitude, and blew the doors off of all of the boxes that a lot of young black people put ourselves in. But y'all don't hear me, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about mm. Everlasting Sound. You fast forward to... Well, well, I'm well, going to fast forward well, well, to tell you what, I, yes. I, I got Scott probably has something to say about this one too. Can Julian? Okay. Do, can we play? <laughs> can we play? Why you want to treat me so bad? So, because you just conjured up an image. Uh, can we play that and then come back so you can talk about your next pick? Yes. Or shall I say yes? No. Yes. Yeah. No. Who got the good? Who got the Morris? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> that will do. Thank you. I got the. Pr- I got Park. the Prince Green dance, but I can't do the Morris. <laughs> you got the scream. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the Morris and. Uh, Scott will play the drums. <laughs> so uh, exactly, uh, Mr. Starks, if you will, let's hit him with that exhibit. Why you want to treat me so bad by Prince? This is the Prince and Morris tribute on Psychotic Bump School with Juliana Bolden, A. Scott Galloway. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back after this.
that guitar. Oh my God. Why you want to treat me so bad? Juliana Bowden, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him with that one. So, uh, wow. Man, the image that you brought to mind, and I'm wondering uh, how this resonates with both you and Scott. I remember when he performed that live on American Bandstand. Y'all remember that? Yes, I do. Well, man, I, I that might be like before my time, but I've seen it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube? What's that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. He couldn't even get the words out. I mean, I just remember that he was so nervous talking to the late, uh, oh, my God, Dick Clark. Almost Dick forgot. Clark, yes. Um, Dick Clark. Uh, was of course that was a pop oriented show. You mentioned Soul Train and American Bandstand, and of course, uh, American Bandstand was dedicated to the pop side. But hey, Scott Galloway, what are your thoughts of that performance, and why you want to treat me so bad on American Bandstand? Well, I mean, I, of course, this you know, I'm going to be talking about something in a minute. But that record, uh, the second album, uh, is where he kind of threw me for a minute because I loved the first record, and then he came out that record, and the way he looked on the cover. And then on that American Bandstand uh, episode, I think he kissed Dez in the middle of a guitar solo. And the interview, he was toying with Dick the whole time. He was giving him the kind of answers I was talking about. Toying with Dick Clark, you mean? (laughs) Toying with with Mr. (laughs) Clark from Philadelphia. Mr. Clark. And, um, yeah, like he was giving him like really crazy one-word answers, and I think that's why he seemed nervous because he was throwing he was thinking of you know how can you know i just completely make mm-hmm. uh, uh again image and persona for myself this is the great dick clark and i'm just going to fluff him off with these stupid one word answers to his questions and so he made mr clark kind of uh nervous <laughs> you know uh in that right. particular moment but it also took me back to you're just talking about prince on television you played party up earlier and I just want to say that I was super amazingly upset because I used to work a midnight shift at that time. I worked overnight at Brockman Memorial Hospital, and the first time that Prince was on national television was on Saturday Night Live. He was not announced. Nobody said anything about him being on the show. And I'm at work, la-di-da, and this dude comes on and does party up and my phone is ringing, you know, <laughs> you know, did you see Prince? He was just, and I was, of course I did. I was working and I didn't get to see that footage for like, I don't know how many years later. First I saw a snippet of it mm-hmm. on like the best of Saturday night live or something. Uh, right. They played maybe 15, 20 seconds of it. And it just took years before I finally got to see that whole thing, which is amazing. So you know, it's, it's, I just say all of that to say, and I'm going to get off of it that Prince's mystique was already on point that early in his career. He was doing things whenever he was on television. He took advantage of it by doing surprise things or unexpected things or freaky things, and it Mm -hmm. just made people talk as another side of his genius. Absolutely. So young to already be thinking like that. Right. Oh, my God. People would be happy to be on TV. Right. And, you know, and he, he, it, 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 it's fascinating how you can do so much more with less. And the fact that he was so mysterious and vague uh, is actually, you're right, just created so much uh, discussion after that appearance. Juliana, it's time for your next pick. But before we get it, 
uh, party up that Scott just mentioned uh, we did play earlier. I forgot to mention um, another tidbit that I learned from reading all this stuff, y'all. Uh, Morris Day said that that's his song. He said that that's he right. came up with that groove. He's playing the drums on that track. He gave it to Prince, and it didn't have a title at the time, but Morris Day says that that song, Party Up, that we've long associated with Prince, Morris Day says that's his track. Juliana Bowden, you're up next again. What's your next track, Miss Bowden? Well, I'm going to fast forward through a lot of the things that people know so well, the signs of the times, uh, the, you know, around the world in a day, Purple Rain. We're going to fast forward to 2001, the Rainbow Children, because oh, at this time... Oh, I love that. At, at this time, uh, what this represents to me personally, like I said before, the uh, the the weight of the rock influence that uh, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad uh, has just, you know, given to those of us who have uh, who have to look to Prince as justification and validation for black artists that want to do anything other than the R&B that people think mm-hmm. is the box that a lot of black people would belong in. Well, there is another box that I find um, not only African Americans, but a lot of other people will find themselves in this box of holiness. And that means that there's one way to act mm. when you follow Jesus or you get um, some other kind of religion. If you're Muslim, if you're this or you're that. A lot of people act like if you are completely uh, dedicated to God, that there are human things that you will not feel, that you will not do. And I feel that the way that Prince was able to embrace the conflict between spirituality and how other people think that you're supposed to behave, you know, and whether or not, you know, you are a person that is loved by God because of who you are or how you, whatever whatever the spiritual trip is that your mind may be wrestling with because religion and spirituality actually are two separate things and the world doesn't necessarily, you know, let you let you live in peace in that way. Is embodied in the rainbow show, embodied in everlasting now. Like for for instance, the same guy, you know, that talks so openly about sexual things. It's you know, there were things that people would say about what happened when Prince start, you know, stopped being so sexual, decided not to curse, and all, all sorts of things like that. And but regardless of whether or not he is a man turned away from those things, the art that he put out there that inspired so many people was still there. And he was doing the same thing when, you know, for instance, I'll throw a lyric out there, Everlasting Now. Um, you know, I knew this dude, he was very cool. He used to rule until he went to school. Not a normal school that breeds a fool, but one that teaches men aren't fit to rule. That's when he took his pearly crown and raised it up and spun it round and tossed it into the deep blue underground. No longer led by the ways of men, he looked for the kingdom deep within. That's when the drums in his head began to pound. Don't let nobody bring you down. Accurate knowledge of Christ and the Father will bring the everlasting now. Join the party. Make a sound. Share the truth and preach the good news. Don't let nobody bring you down the everlasting now. What that did for Mm. me as a person that grew up a Prince fan and grew up in the church and was taught that 
you act one way on Sunday, but then, you know, the rest of the week it's not necessarily cool to talk about Jesus out <laughs> in the public. Mm-hmm. He brought everything home, and it was every, it was, there was a joy that I experienced listening to Prince any given day that I used to reserve only for Sundays. It, it, and part of the reason for that is because people put so many um, pressures on what they think they're supposed to be that they don't spend enough time in prayer asking God to lead them. And I think that he actually went, he was probably going through some of the same things because Prince was just a human being. But what happens when you're an artist, regardless of whether or not you come up with a curse jar because you decide not to curse and you don't want the rest of your band or people cursing in you, everything that you've already done is out there and is a living, breathing entity all of its own. So the brain of why you want to treat me so bad to everlasting now and every funky, ridiculously Mm. amazing thing he did in between represents this range of experiences that I can cling to as a human being and say, if Prince went through all of these things and was able to achieve greatness, it's okay that I'm conflicted. I am still loved by God. Everlasting now. Wow. This is Starks. Let's hit him. KCWG. Psychotic Bump School. We're back after this. Good news, so let nobody bring you down everlasting now. Alright. Bam! 
it just ain't fair for, for, for one man, <laughs> for one guy to have all this talent. Ladies and gentlemen, the everlasting now from the classic 2001 album, uh, The Rainbow Children, uh, picked by our guest tonight, Miss Juliana Bowden. Miss Bowden, I love that yes, yes. album. You don't even know. You don't even know. I mean, I love that album. It's highly touted as being the, the Jehovah's Witness album, the religious album. Uh, a lot of people were, well, some, I, I can't say a lot, but some people were annoyed by the, the, the slow-speaking narrative that connects all the songs together. But I love that album. It's, it's, it's dark, it's funky, it's jazzy. Uh, the artwork is stellar. Like, I mean, incredibly, incomparably stellar. I just had to have it. I remember playing that album live when it came out. I went to the, the Amoeba Records, bought vinyl copies, took it to my gig, and I was opening them, pulling them out the plastic and putting them on the turntables as I was pulling them out and reading the liner notes at a DJ gig. That's what this album means to me. But uh, Scott, uh, wow. real quick, you were saying some crazy stuff. Juliana, you want to tie it up in a bow real quick before we pivot to Scott? Well, Scott and I were talking offline, and I would like him to tie this one up for me. Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, I mean, this was the Rainbow Children, to me, marks kind of the beginning of that, uh, or maybe not the absolute beginning, but it was like the first, you know, knock it out of the park representation of Prince in his, deep in his Jehovah's Witness uh, transformation. And it's a, it's a really powerful album, um, one that's very, you know, much needed to be heard by Prince fans. Uh, to, to get an idea of, of where he was coming from. Um, but what I was saying offline was that, you know, a lot of what Prince, uh, you know, he was led into Jehovah's Witnessing through uh, Brother Larry Graham, and um, I think he ended up having some of the same problems that Larry had when he kind of, you know, wholesale brought the Jehovah's Witness, his Jehovah's Witness beliefs into Graham Central Station, in that, you know, not only did it kind of freak some of his listeners and his fans out, but certain band members couldn't get with being on stage and doing one thing, you know, like funking out and maybe singing some songs about sex and partying or whatever. And then, you know, in the same show, kind of getting into some other kinds of thoughts, other kinds of spiritual thoughts and, and trying to lead people and proselytize to people to follow a certain way of life. And um, that's always, you know, I mean, from Scott, Marvin Gaye, I would, Prince, I would actually ahead. advise, I would, I would actually advise Prince fans who are newer Prince fans that may think that this is some of the first forays he did into spirituality to see the songs, The Cross, uh, God, and yeah, to understand right. that the situation that you are describing with Larry, you know, earlier on in Prince's, I feel that these, um, you know, lyrics that talk directly about spirituality and God have been present in, in most every Prince album to some degree, um, maybe so much, maybe not the For You and the very er, most earliest ones, but definitely by the time he got to Controversy, 1999, and, and all the ones beyond that, Spirituality, God, those were uh, called out very plainly without reservation by Prince all along, and the Rainbow Children, to me, represented one of the just, well, the 
specifically Everlasting Now, represented just one of the funkiest, most joyous renditions of a person reveling in his belief in God. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that, but I, I think the difference is that in the earlier records, like Free and the Cross and God and, and all of those, he was he was a Christian. He was Christian at that point, and he was, I mean, he was doing those songs right next to you know, head, another lover, hole, hole in your head, and controversy and sexuality, and, you know, he was, you know, those songs were coexisting, you know, yeah. along with Free and God in the Cross, but but the difference was by the time he got to the Rainbow Children, it got a whole lot deeper, because I think he was conflicted before, but in his Jehovah's Witness walk, which is where the Rainbow Children falls, he got a lot more serious. And that's also the point that, I don't know if we talked about it on air or off, I can't remember, but you know, there was a point when he stopped doing some of his older material and he stopped cursing yeah. and he was, you know, he, he, you know, said that, you know, he was ashamed of that stuff that he did before, he wasn't going to do it anymore. And it was a more hardline, you know, kind of a, a thing where he was still making the music funky, but there was no longer the same uh, dilly-dallying back and forth with, you know, hey, I love God, and hey, I want to screw my sister. You know I mean? No, that was not going on by the time you got to Rainbow Children. That's right. That's right. This is KCWG, thetruth.com. It's called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome, and uh, we're having a, oh, my goodness, I love this conversation. We're talking about Prince and Morris Day tonight with A. Scott Galloway as well as Juliana Bowden. And we're about to hear the list from A. Scott Galloway. But uh, real quick, Juliana, Scott, and listeners, go read the book On Time, uh, Princely Life of Funk by Morris Day. He talks about his uh, interactions with Prince as he was entering this stage that Juliana brought to us with the Rainbow Children and the Everlasting Now and the conflict that that caused him. Um, He talks about the irony that uh, Michael Jackson was also into Jehovah's Witnessing uh, prior to Prince and how they both being Geminis and being the iconic pop stars of their time, uh, how much of a coincidence was it that they both ended up supporting the same faith and practicing it actively? Uh, He also talks about how he was on the Fired Up tour and that conflict with Rick James, if you want to call it a conflict, and how the handing off of the torch from George Clinton to Rick James and from Rick James to Prince. Morris Day breaks all of that down, but he definitely gets into this religion uh, discussion. It's very, very fascinating. Make sure you catch him next week at the Grammy Museum, as Juliana said. Uh, Great stuff. Uh, Mr. A. Scott Galloway, you are up. What you got for us, my man? Well, I think that um, ever since about a month ago, uh, there was a free release that popped up on the uh, internet uh, out of the blue of a demo of Prince doing, I want, um, oh, I feel for you. Uh, Ever since I heard that, it has had me, and of course, I think reading uh, his discussions about himself in the Beautiful Ones book, it, it just really took me all the way back to the beginnings of Prince. And I remember that that very first album, which is called For You, um, was so mind-blowing and impressive that this one black young man did, you know, opens his album with a completely a cappella, layered, multi-tracked, you know, know, introduction. Uh, And then it goes into this synthesizer 
ballad, you know, called In Love, and that drops into the first single, Soft and Wet, which was like the first thing I ever heard by Prince, mm-hmm. you know, and that was on the radio, and how incredibly syncopated and funky that was, and, and not like the era of disco, where everything was boom, 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 he was boom, catch it, boom, boom, catch boom, catch boom, you know, he, he was giving you... Oh my God, you know, and then that's followed by Crazy You. So that, you know, that first album, you can tell obviously that he was like, I'm going to put something together that is definitely going to get people's attention, especially when it goes out in the press release that I did all of this by myself, you know, uh, with a little bit of help from uh, maybe one or two people, one of them being Patrice Russian, lightly uh, in there somewhere. But, uh, you know, so. But listening to that I Feel For You demo, I Feel For You ended up coming out on his second album, which was self-titled Prince. But when you hear the demo that came out for free on the Internet, it's just Prince. You hear him click the recorder on his his portable cassette player on, and you listen to this young man sitting on the edge of his bed, most likely, strumming on an acoustic guitar and uh, just beginning to put the pieces together of I feel for you. So all the right lyrics aren't there yet. And he's scatting through the second half of the song. And, but he's already got this facility on the guitar. He's already got the voice. He's singing in falsetto. And I just, you can never discount how amazing this guy was so young because he spent so much time. He was so dedicated to being excellent, you know, um, you know, I, superb, not just good and okay, but, you know, I'm going to play the guitar, I'm going to play the keyboards, I'm going to play the drums, I'm going to sing, I'm going to sing in harmony, I'm going to harmonize with myself, I'm going to do all this stuff, you know. And so the two songs that, and I guess we'll just play one of them, because I do have one other one I wanted to talk about. Uh, but, I, you know, I had picked Crazy You and I'm Yours. Crazy You Ooh. is just such an uh, impeccable ballad, and this cat sings it all in falsetto, it's done with a waterlogged drum and something called an ore bass and, and then acoustic guitar. And he just sets this whole tranquil mood that is so sexy and so romantic and so intimate. You know, it, it, it's like, who is this guy? You know, he, for him to be able to do something like that. And then at the very end of the album, he turns around and gives us a straight-up rock song that goes through about three different changes. The song is called I'm Yours. And, um, you know, and that's like totally like some band stuff. Like, you know, it's, 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 he's wailing on the guitar, you know, soloing his behind off. You've got an incredible bass line that sets everything up. Tremolo parts, you know, drums. It's like, wow, you know, I will never get over being a musician myself, I was a kid, uh, you know, I guess in 79 when that came out, I was about 15, something like that. Yeah, about, yeah, 15, 16 years old. And to just, you know, just be trying to really get good on drums. And this guy is like just killing everything, you know, in the studio. <laughs> so I think of the two songs, let's play I'm Yours because yeah. um, I'm Yours, it, it, it shows that serious kind of progressive rock side of Prince. And it's still a sexy song. He's always, you know, you know, he's a young person, so he's very much, you know, the pheromones were rolling, you know. Uh, but um, it's like, or hormones or whatever, you know, he was cross-dealing in both of them, I guess. But it was just like, yo, man, 
it's great. And I don't think he did that song in concert until my boy got to see him right toward the end. He did a show here at the, uh, ooh, it's either Microsoft Theater or the Conger Room. There's a Conger Room, actually. And Mm -hmm. my friend went to go see that show, and Prince opened. And we're talking, this is like maybe a couple years before he died. And Prince wow. opened his concert with I'm Yours. And I was so jealous. Oh I kind of stopped going to see him by that point in time. But just imagine, you know, seeing this dude rock out on uh, on this song. And then imagine wow. him as a teenager in the studio playing all the parts and singing all the parts himself. That is crazy of you to bring up I'm Yours from the first album. Uh, Mr. Starks, if you will, let's hit him with it. KCWGTheTruth.com, Psychotic Bump School. We're back after this.
see, that don't even make no kind of sense for somebody to be that talented, that young. This is KCWGTheTruth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and that was A. Scott Galloway's pick, y'all, from the debut album, For You. That was called I'm Yours, A. Scott Galloway. Oh, my goodness. Uh, people modern day, you, you, I don't know if you can appreciate true musicianship, but that right there was true musicianship. Well, we're just about out of time. Um, make sure you go out and read The Beautiful Ones and Prince, uh, Princely Life of Funk by Morris Day on time. Uh, he talks about how his uh, uh, demo actually got him the record deal. It was Grand Central, the original band that Prince was in with Morris, that got him the record deal as a solo artist. And Morris was a little salty about that, but he breaks it all down in the book before that For You album came out. Uh, Juliana Bowden, uh, final thoughts from you, and then we're going to turn it over to Scott to close out our show. Miss Juliana Bowden. Oh, definitely. It's been such a pleasure here on Psychotic Bump School, like going through the entire list of what Scott and I brought, talking about the books and everything. One of the things that you just said about how talented Prince was that young, I just want to encourage everybody to take a look around and support the live musicians, support the musicians that yes. are perhaps not getting enough love because this is a niche type of world that we live in right now and we're not all going to the water cooler at the same time talking about how great you know somebody was on this show or that show because in a world where we can program our lives and watch everything on our phones and computers and stuff when we want mm -hmm. to we discover things at different times so i just want to give a shout out to people that are carrying on the great of Prince that where I see in Anderson Pop and Janelle Monet and you know mm. people are, I think on a lot of levels some of the musicianship and the comp composition of Bruno Mars is not given enough credit because we don't see everything that that brother's been doing behind the scenes for so many people over the years and if there's anybody else out there that the fans want to like you know throw out in the pot you know hashtag Music Monday me at on Twitter or Instagram at Juliana on Beat and let's talk about it and make sure that we are carrying on that legacy of discovering great music and sharing with one another and really making the most of the technology that Prince came to love and hate. <laughs> and I say this, mm -hmm. you know, as, as, as a person that looks forward to the next Psychotic Bump School when we can talk about Prince and the Internet, like, as a whole of the show. <laughs> so, oh, on no. that, you know, on on that on on that note, I just want to thank Psychotic Bump School for having me and say stop the presses, Scott Galloway. What else you got? Come on now, <laughs> Galloway. <laughs> stop the press. I love Juliana J. <laughs> oh, you I know. see what she did there. I get it. I didn't you catch that. I see what she did there. I like what you did right there, right there. That was that was wow. real cool right there. Right. Because Yay. my final song of the evening goes right to that, which is, uh, who's that? And um, I, I have to tell you, um, oh, we yeah. talked about how brilliant oh, Prince yeah. was young. But now we, we come up to when Warner Brothers allowed this brother to take over the soundtrack for, I think it was the second Batman movie, Michael Keaton. And, you know, um, they weren't sure if he was ready. I mean, I think they actually put him through some tests to see if he could actually pull it off. And they actually pulled, I mean, he's supposed to work with Danny Elfman, you know, who's famous for, you know, being Oingo Boingo's leader and founder and all that. But then, of course, he went on to become a major contributor to the, the world of film music. 
and uh, and Elkman said, I don't, you know, he's cool and all that, but I don't want to work with him, you know. And so Prince was left to his own devices, and he came up with the Batman soundtrack. And so, you know, I'm going to go straight to Bat Dance, which was really a medley slash suite of several different pieces, like the finale of the album, but it was the first single released from the record. And I remember I was working at Urban Network at the time, and I was the music editor, but they were going to debut this song on, of all places, the Mark and Brian show on KLOS, which is a rock station here in Los Angeles. Mark and Brian were going to get to play the song at 9 o'clock before anybody else in the country had access to the song. So I had to pass right by Warner Brothers to drive to work. And I was in my car at 9 o'clock, and my, and my, you know, my boss at that time was seriously on a you-have-to-be-at-work-on-time thing. And on time meant like 8.55, between 8.55 and 9 o'clock. Long story short, I was in my car listening to Mark and Brian play Bat Dance, and I literally had to almost pull over. Because what Prince was doing with music, with sampled dialogue, sound effects, and all kind of things from the movie, and that he, he created this Bat Dance song that had three movements, three different rhythms and parts. And it was just the most exciting, exhilarating thing that, you know, I and mean, I can still remember driving my car on, ooh, Barham, turning into Olive, and, and just having my mind ripped out of my skull, basically, because I had, I had, nobody had heard anything like this before. And uh, so, you know, the the man was always learning, always growing, always a step ahead, always coming up with new innovative ways of doing things. And uh, while a lot of people kind of poo-poo the Batman soundtrack for maybe some of the other songs on it or, you know, it didn't have enough funk on it or enough of whatever certain people wanted, the record sold very well for him, connected to Batman, of course. But that dance in and of itself is an uncontestable masterpiece that has not been duplicated since. And I just think that we need to close out the show showing a little bit of this man's complete and total visionary genius with what he did on that song. Wow, beautiful stuff. Juliana Bolden, A. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Prince of Morris Day, y'all. Check out The Beautiful Ones and On Time, A Princely Life of Funk. And check out the 1999 Super Deluxe uh, release that just came out. I also want to thank our producer, Mr. Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we are out of here, y'all. We'll see you next week. Let's hit them with a bad dance. Stop the press. Oh, I got a live one here.
the Batman. I'm not gonna kill you. 